calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Hello and welcome to Guiding Assets, the flagship investment podcast for CFA Institute. I'm Mike Wahlberg and on the show today we are going to be talking about crypto assets. For that conversation, I'm joined by two leading figures in the space. Matt Hogan is the Chief Investment Officer and David Lewant is the Director of Research at Bitwise, a crypto asset manager known for managing the world's largest crypto index fund. The two also do a lot of work partnering with others to provide education in the space, including just an excellent resource published by the CFA Institute in 2021. We'll include the link to David and Matt's comprehensive report in the episode notes. So welcome, fellas. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Mike. Excited to be here. Now, talking about crypto assets can go a lot of ways, depending on who's in the room. The topic itself can be a very polarizing one, almost akin to a religion, I'd say. On one end of the spectrum, you have the devout, the, the hodlers or the hold on for dear lifers, no matter what. At the other end, you have the equivalent of the atheists who are equally sure crypto assets don't have any inherent value because they don't generate cash flows, sort of the Warren Buffetts of the world. And then in the middle, you, you have what probably makes up a big proportion of the investing landscape. And that's effectively the agnostics who just don't know enough to make a call either way. And perhaps, listener, you fall into that camp. And I admit, I do. So hopefully the conversation today will help everyone bone up their knowledge of the asset class and in doing so, help move them to either side of center. So let's dive in. Matt, if you could, please start us off with a very quick review of what a cryptocurrency is and how blockchains enable them to function. Great, Mike. I love that framing of two poles. Crypto is the land of hype and hyperbole. And of course, the reality lies somewhere in the middle. The place to start with crypto is with blockchain. Blockchain is a technology that allows money and property rights to exist on the internet. And you know that it works because on the Bitcoin network, as one example, I can send a billion dollars to anyone in the world and have it settle within 10 minutes, even though there are no employees, no offices, no company there. But if I go to the largest bank in the world and try to send a billion dollars, it'll take multiple days and the fee will be significantly higher. So it's a new technology that allows money and property to exist on the internet. That technology can be applied in multiple different ways. Crypto assets like Bitcoin use that core technology to be digital stores of wealth. Crypto assets like Ethereum use that technology to power a new internet of finance that you can build a new decentralized version of finance on top of. A lot of people mentally model crypto as currencies and expect you to use them like dollars, expect you to buy a coffee with them. That's not what it's about. It's a technology that crypto assets are a piece of that lets money and property exist on the internet. And that's why people are so excited about it. Not because we need a new way to buy a mocha frappuccino. We don't. I think that's spot on. And if I could add to this, the, the only thing I would highlight is that this is a technology that has been in the works for a long time. There is this impression that the Bitcoin white paper, which came at the end of 2008, kind of started this whole technology, which is true. But also, I think it's important to highlight that this is a very fundamental computer science problem 
that some very, very smart scientists and researchers have been trying to solve since the early 80s. And, it has been, and there has been multiple attempts at solving this problem. Bitcoin was the first one that worked. But in that way, it is a pretty old and very fundamental problem in computer science that has been solved with the advent of Bitcoin. And then all the other stuff that came after Bitcoin, as Matt highlighted, that has expanded the amount of things that we can do with this technology. That's great. And I'd, I'd love to get into talking about the, the, the broader ecosystem here in our conversation today. Before we get there, though, I, the, the headline number that, that the average investor sees when they're talking about cryptocurrencies is, of course, the currencies themselves, the Bitcoins, the Ethereums. So I want to talk valuations. I want to understand how people are assessing the value of a coin. In your report, I mentioned earlier, you quoted NYU finance professor Aswath Damodaran as saying, not everything can be valued, but almost everything can be priced. Well, what did he mean by that? And where does he and you see crypto falling on that scale? This is a great quote. I quote a really like, so Damodaran published this, I think in 2017, when he was actually talking about how to value cryptocurrencies. And... For me, this is something that I've been thinking very hard since I decided to jump into space, or actually before I decided to jump into space, because I used to be a sell-side equities analyst in the past. So in order to underwrite or convince myself of an investment, I needed to do uh, some sort of DCF exercise or valuation multiple analysis. And I think for me, what helped the most understand crypto and, and how to think about these in uh, valuation fronts was basically to understand or at least a lot of these larger assets, and I think Bitcoin is the prime example here, as a commodity. So as I think we Matt alluded to, these assets, they have scarcity and they have utility. So in a sense, although they are virtual, I think that from a valuation standpoint, they work a lot as a commodity. So I think that the best way to think about them is from a supply and demand perspective. Of course, there is an aspect of emerging emergence or these are new assets that are emerging as new commodities. There's a whole price and utility discovery process going on with these assets. So it is in a sense, a mix between commodity investing and venture capital investing, as I would say, at least for Bitcoin. So I think that's the best way to think about it uh, as a commodity. So the best tools I think we have to analyze these would be thinking about the potential addressable market, thinking about how big it can be. And today, I think we're in an early enough position in that you don't have to make very strong assumptions to potentially see a lot of value for an asset like Bitcoin. And then for the other assets, things start to get more interesting. I guess I'll pass this on to Matt so he can talk a little bit how when you start to go past Bitcoin, you can start seeing some of these assets and you can start using tools that are a little bit more like the tools that we have for traditional or even cash flow generating assets. Matt, do you wanna, do you wanna take it from here? Sure, and I absolutely agree with all of that, David. The thing that David is pointing to is that, you know, once you get beyond Bitcoin, things change. Bitcoin doesn't have a cash flow or utility function. I like to call it pet rock of crypto, which David doesn't like because he's a big Bitcoin fan. But its primary role is to effectively sit there and store wealth in a digital format. And as a result, its value, as David alluded, 
is just driven by supply and demand. And in fact, since supply is known and inelastic, its value is just driven um, by demand, kind of like gold, except for without supply elasticity. Ethereum is different. Ethereum is a global database, a computer in the sky. You can think of it as like 300,000 computers that each record a copy of a database. And anytime you want to change that database, say I sell you an NFT of a digital art, I have to get all 300,000 computers to update their copy. And the way I do that is I pay a fee denominated in Ethereum. And since last year, a significant portion of that fee is destroyed forever. It's burned in the same way that if you put gas into your car, it is burned. As a result, when you think about how value accrues to the Ethereum ecosystem, it almost has something like a consumable commodity or almost a stock buyback characteristic. Again, the supply is known and inflating very slowly as demand rises to use the blockchain, the value accrues. And as you go further down the spectrum to uh, more niche crypto assets like Uniswap, which is a decentralized crypto exchange, those actually generate cash flows that are accruing to the treasury. And those can be valued very similarly to traditional stocks. So a lot of people get hung up on crypto valuations in part because they're focused on Bitcoin, which is the hardest thing to value. Now, I think I could make an argument why its current valuation is likely off by a significant factor, but it does get easier once you beyond, go beyond Bitcoin to these more ut useful blockchains or blockchains with more utility because they have more cash flow like characteristics. And so these other non-Bitcoin providers or, or, or currencies all have that same built-in endpoint where, where there's a limited number of effectively coins. And then once, once we hit that limit, then, then what happens? It's a great question. Most of them have actually a, an inflationary supply that increases over time in the same way that we pull more gold out of the ground every year. So Ethereum right now actually post the September upgrade called the merge will have an inflation curve of about 1% a year. So a little bit more Ethereum forever. That is offset by the amount of Ethereum burned. So whether the amount goes up or down depends on, on the use. The question of what happens at the end of time is an interesting one. On Bitcoin, we run out of new Bitcoin to issue, which is what pays miners to maintain the network in 2130. I believe David will correct me if I have that date wrong, but a hundred years from now, the way it maintains after that is in order to do a Bitcoin transaction, you have to pay a tip and that tip is paid in Bitcoin. So even though more Bitcoin isn't being created, you still have people using it. Uh, and the same is true in Ethereum. You have people paying for those transactions with use. Now, what you're pointing at, Mike, is over time, Ethereum will become more scarce if there's high demand to use the blockchain. That's the bet investors are making. Uh, you can almost model it back. Imagine if there were like a million internet tokens and every time you wanted to pull up the New York Times, you had to pay a fee in an internet token. And over time, those internet tokens would become more valuable. Uh, that's sort of the process that's going on in Ethereum. We don't know if the Ethereum internet to, to torture the methodology is going to be as important or of any importance versus the internet but it's the right mental model to think about how that value accrues. Yes, I, I guess the, the, the other thing I would add on top of that is that this scarcity element is very important for Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin's going for this 
sound money, gold-like type of investment. And so at 2140, 10, 10 years, just 10 years later, the, the last portions of Bitcoin will be issued for miners. And this is a very central aspect of Bitcoin. But I think that the important thing, and I think it ties up a little bit with what Matt said about the other assets being more, quote unquote, useful in the terms of non-monetary applications, is that perhaps for the other assets, even more important than the scarcity element is the utility side of things. There's definitely a scarcity element that allows it to attract value, right? If there, were, if there wasn't no scarcity there, these assets would probably not accrue a ton of value. But I feel like that for a lot of these non-Bitcoin assets, the utility is a lot more important than the supply here. While for Bitcoin, the, the scarcity is very central to its use case and its whole existence as this sound money repla potential replacement. That's a great segue there, uh, David. Thank you for, for talking about the ecosystem around the currency itself. I'd love to talk a bit about that. And maybe, David, you could take us through the various ways to play crypto outside of the currency exposure. What, what are the characteristics of those subsectors? If you have a look at, uh, at uh, a Bitwise ETF, for example, there are a lot of different companies on there that are not currencies. Yes, this is, this is a great question. I think that there's probably two or three ways for investors to have exposure to the crypto ecosystem. Uh, the one is the one that we have, we have been exploring until now, which is to have exposure to the crypto assets. And that can be obtained in a number of different ways. You can uh, buy them directly through an exchange. You can use an index fund provider like, like Bitwise, for example, or other types of funds that will buy the assets directly. So that's one way to have exposure to this ecosystem. The other way to have exposure to this ecosystem, which is probably, by the way, how many uh, institutional investors started their exposure in crypto, is through venture capital investments in companies that are not listed, of course, and that have uh, exposure or that add value to this industry. So that's how a lot of, for example, institutional investors started to have exposure to crypto, because even if they didn't have the mandate or they didn't have uh, the, the whole, the, the, their, their structure and their processes around buying crypto assets directly, they could invest in venture capital funds. This is a well-known uh, asset allocations leave. So that's how a lot of funds ended up having exposure to the space, which is, of course, a different way to do it. Uh, these companies are definitely exposed to the underlying crypto asset price cycle, but of course they have their own idiosyncratic value drivers. And then another one that has come up actually relatively recently, this came up like, let's say a year, maybe a year and a half ago, is what we call crypto equities, which are listed companies that have exposure to the crypto ecosystem. We have an index that tracks uh, the crypto, uh, the crypto equities broader market. It's called the Bitwise Crypto Innovators 30 Index, and it tracks companies like Coinbase or the Bitcoin miners or other companies that are service providers in the industry, like uh, Silvergate, a banking service provider, and also companies that, even if they're not pure plays, they might have a substantial business 
line related to crypto. So you can think of companies like PayPal or the CME, which has a Bitcoin futures contract, Bitcoin and Ethereum futures contracts trading. So I think that these are probably the three main ways that an investor can have exposure to this ecosystem. Again, direct assets, venture capital investments, or public equities. Thanks for that. And I, I want to talk about risk today. I can't have a conversation about crypto these days without addressing the elephant in the room, which is obviously the slump that the uh, crypto assets have been experiencing this year. Don't have to tell you, Bitcoin and Ethereum are both down about 56% so far this year, although up a bit since June. And we had the bankruptcy of Celsius uh, back in July. It froze over half a million accounts. So you have these sort of points in time where you have extremely high levels of volatility. And we know that portfolio theory holds that investors have to incur risk, of course, to expect return. But my question to you, and it's going to be a long one, is it possible to contemplate this level of potential capital erosion when allocating assets? Like, can you even build that into your models, even even with a long time horizon? And and I guess I'll go to you, Matt, perhaps to, to, to answer, given the risk, what role, if any, should crypto assets play in investors' portfolios? Yeah, it's a great question, Mike. I, I think the role crypto assets play in most investors' portfolios, the role cayenne pepper plays in my cooking, which is that it's a very exciting thing and it can be wonderful, particularly in small levels. But if you have too much, I can overwhelm the dish. And that's true with crypto. Look, it is the best performing asset class in the world over the last three, five, and 10 years. It has significant institutional interest, significant hedge fund interest. So investors aren't crazy to think this might be something worthwhile. But as you point out, it also is historically volatile. And what that means is when you add it to a portfolio, you have to right size your portfolio. The typical Bitwise investor has about two and a half percent of their portfolio in crypto. And David and I have done a study that shows its risk return characteristics really look great until about 5% when it becomes the primary driver of max drawdowns in a portfolio historically. Uh, so the right size. And then you need to rebalance. One curious thing about crypto to me is that people forget to treat it like other asset classes. If you put stocks into a portfolio and don't rebalance, there are people who do that, but that's an outside of normal view. Uh, the same thing is true in crypto. And what David and I have shown is there's actually never been a three-year period in crypto's history where adding it to a portfolio and rebalancing didn't increase your risk-adjusted returns. That's no guarantee it will be true in the future, but historically it has been true. I would add one more major thought because you raised the question of risks and we talked about volatility. People ask me what the largest risk in crypto is. And I think the largest risk is behavioral. It's actually the risk of chasing high returns and overweighting your portfolio or panic selling at the bottom. Those are the altars on which most investor capital has been sacrificed in crypto. Over long periods of time at a small allocation, it can be an interesting investment for some. And I think that's the right way to think about it. But make no mistake, we're talking about an asset whose value, primary value is still in the future. And so it discounts back in aggressive fashions. And this pattern of volatility is not over. We will have more volatility in the future. And investors just need to bake that into their, their thought process when they're evaluating their investments. So given it's, uh, it's discounting those cash flows from the future, is the aggressive rate tightening this year, in your opinion, one of the drivers of, of the correction in the valuations? 
Absolutely. In fact, if you look at when the pullback in crypto started, it started in November of last year. What happened in November of last year? That was when we got the release of the Fed minutes from the meeting that said inflation is not transitory. We're going to have to shift from QE to QT, quantitative easing to quantitative tightening. Crypto is a risk asset. And when macro looms large, it adjusts with those macro considerations. So absolutely, that was a primary driver. And then you had an echo effect of that which should be familiar to anyone who has studied finance. Crypto pulled back aggressively because of the macro adjustment. And then crypto was over levered and had a little mini credit crisis of its own because it had gone through a historic bull market. We've certainly all seen the financial industry, the mortgage industry, other industries go through bull markets, have a reset and a credit crisis before they bottom. That was what crypto went through between November and June. And what we're feeling now crypto has been treading sideways since June, is you know, crypto understanding the macro outlook, crypto having moving pa moved past its credit crisis. And now the question is, can crypto develop products that enter the mainstream and penetrate major use cases? And do we see that utility grow? I think we've largely gotten past those shocks, but they were the big drivers of returns over the last eight months or so. And I'm curious about that too. I wonder if you could talk to this idea of, or I guess the the trend we're seeing now towards larger players, the Black Rocks and the and the bigger bigger players who are entering the space, and you know talk about you know central banks and governments trying to develop their own you know, crypto assets. Like, where are we in that evolution, and how important are 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 these sort of bigger, more established institutions to to the sort of the next stage of crypto? This is an awesome question. I, I can take a stab and, and, and Matt can add on. But what I would say is that, uh, well, this highlights one of the uniqueness of crypto, right? It's one of the first asset classes in which retail assessed and were exposed to the returns before the institutional clients. Uh, but one thing that we have definitely seen over the last five years, but I would say especially so over the last two years, is the entrance of more institutional and larger investors in the space. We can see this in many ways. We can see, for example, when Paul Tudor Jones wrote a, 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 an investment letter and did a very bold call on Bitcoin as an inflation hedge by mid 2020. Then we saw a bunch of other macro investors like Stanley Druckenmiller and others also uh, having exposure to Bitcoin. You can see in large companies starting to use Ethereum as a platform in order to take advantage of all the things that you can do with Bitcoin. So you can see large companies uh, starting to, for example, integrate NFTs into their platforms. And basically all that this is saying is that they are underlying using using the underlying Ethereum blockchain. So this is something that it, it has really surprised me over the last few years, how many use cases we have seen. And then especially over the last these last two years, we've seen these use cases going well past Bitcoin's digital gold. So we had use cases like stable coins, decentralized finance, as Matt alluded to in the beginning of our chat, NFTs. So today I feel like Blockchains, I mean, they, they are a topic of conversation for many large companies, not only in terms of their uh, investment strategies, but also in terms of their business lines. And I think that this also reflects on the larger investors. 
I've been talking for a long time, so I'll pause here. I'll let Matt talk about the CBDCs. Well, I would just add one analogy on top of what David David said. I mean, as you all know, I come from an ETF background. Before I was at Bitwise, I was the CEO of ETF.com. I actually wrote, co-wrote the CFA Institute's monograph on ETFs. And what we what I learned in ETF land is is these big companies embracing it as a huge sign of validation. Right, the early days of ETFs were developed by upstarts like like BGI. Uh, State Street was not a big fund provider. PowerShares was a company no one had ever heard of. And today, Vanguard, BlackRock, etc. So you often see for disruptive technologies, the, the large folks eye it, evaluate, and eventually move in. And that moving in should be seen as a big validation. So BlackRock embracing it and launching a fund is a major validation. Schwab embracing it and launching a fund is a major validation. When Bitwise started five years ago, there was a lot of discussion from the industry stalwarts. Will crypto be around in the future or will it really recede to nothing like a tulip bulb? And I think those steps show that it will be around into the future. On the CBDC front, uh, you're going to see that everywhere. The reason you're seeing all major central banks investigated is the reason we discussed at the start of this podcast, which is that Blockchain technology is simply a hundredfold better way to move value in today's society than the ways we use uh, in the existing system. Uh, it's the way that money and property can move over the internet and central banks and governments want to be at the forefront of that. I think all currencies will migrate uh, to CBDCs over the next 10, 20 years. And I don't see anything that will stop that progress. So we're down to our final question here. It's a two-parter, and I'd love it if you could each answer it. What was your first job in the industry? And if you could go back and take yourself for coffee on your first day, what key piece of advice would you offer yourself? <laughs> David, do you want to go first? Yes, I can start. So I, my first job was uh, right after graduation. I started working as a equities research analyst, sell-side equities analyst. So I used to cover uh, Latin American stocks and doing reports and valuation models and all that sort of stuff. I think that the advice that I would give for my former self, knowing what I know now, Oh, wow. That's, that's such a great question. I think the most important perhaps would be to read a lot, keep an open mind and look at, uh, pay attention to all the innovations that are happening on the space. I'm originally from Brazil, so I've never, at least at that part of my career, all these technological developments that were going on here in Silicon Valley at the time, not, not in crypto a little bit before that. Uh, it's something that it took me a while to accept and understand. And it also took me a little while to understand a Bitcoin and crypto. It took me a good two years. I was a very big skeptic before I embraced it more fully. So yeah, so that's what I would give as advice to my former self. Amazing. Super fun. My, my first job was at a biotech analyst for what was the world's first fully transparent mutual fund which was the Metamarkets Fund back in the, in the late 1990s, where we disclosed all our trades in real time before that was an idea. If I had to go back and give myself advice, obviously it would be buy Bitcoin when it's a dollar. That would be, you know, come on, that's a, that's a layup. But more broadly on career advice, 
I, I think I would tell myself to write and publish. I find writing to be the single best way to clarify my thinking and challenge my assumptions and really understand the world at a better level. That's not true for everyone, but it's very true for me. And so I would remind myself to continually do that. I've been speaking today with Bitwise CIO, Matt Hogan, and Director of Research, David Lewan. Thank you both for making the time today. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Mike. I'm Mike Wahlberg, and this has been Guiding Assets.